Hello, I'm Elizabeth, an obsessive backyard gardener who might be able to offer you a couple of tips. And I'm Keith, a landscape consultant, and I'm also passionate about gardening. The one thing we both have in common is muddy muddy boots. I know I've said it before, but I love our monthly Q&A sessions because we always get such a wide range of fabulous questions. And I'm learning so much from them, as I'm sure our listeners are too. So let's get started with this month's questions. Our first question is from Ruth. My brother and I run our family winery out in the Macedon Ranges. 35 years ago, our parents planted 2,000 odd daffodils alongside the driveway. A couple of years ago, my brother decided to throw the rules to the wind and mow over them when they had just started to die off, much to my horror. Surprise, surprise, ever since, we've basically had no flowers come September, October each year. Is there any way of coming back from this, or do we have to dig them all up and start again, Keith? Oh, Ruth, what a (laughs) brother you have. What has he done? All right, so just a little quick look at what's happened here bulbs produce flowers from stored energy and this energy is gathered during the period as the leaves die back the leaves are creating the two sugars sucrose and fructose from the photosynthesis process of sunlight and they store this in the bulbs that's their energy by cutting down the leaves you have stopped the plant's ability to flower the following year i would suggest an application of an organic fertilizer that is bulb specific such as neutrogs strike back for orchids Um, this product is is higher in the potash range which is for flowering and for fruiting uh, and it's also great for bulbs so um, i wouldn't let your brother near that bloody mower or anything else again ever (laughs) let the bulbs do what they do naturally and that is just go all the way through until they look what they look like but that's doing their job so you're saying there is a little bit of hope there's hope hopefully be, no absolutely i'll be giving them a good fertilizer feed. um absolutely you know okay. it's mum and dad's hard work's gone into that i know <laughs> 2000 my goodness okay question number two is from lucy i'm interested in the practice of espalier training so my questions are number one how to actually do it successfully and number two will it work with olive trees or are there other species that are more suited Right, espalier works on all plants and olives are absolutely perfect for this process. So how do you do it? You go and look for an olive tree that, that has been grown in a, in a, in a hard nursery situation. So it's, it's, you're looking for a tree that, that you can fold flat, okay, rather than a rounded plant. You're looking for something that's fairly flat and fairly open. And then you would simply put that tree up against a lattice push those branches back onto that lattice and then use either clips or ties and tie those branches to that lattice and then give it a good feed, liquid feed, and let it grow. Um, What will then happen is that tree will then produce longer branches, but it might also produce some branches coming out towards the front. If you can't tie those branches that are growing out towards the front back on to fill gaps, then cut them off and that will then thicken those up. So olives are perfect for, for having an espalier wall, along with, with citrus. I mean, I've got, I've got um, lemons and I've got oranges at home that are all, all espalier, um, you know, just to a, a, flat, uh, a flat lattice screen, um, and they work beautifully. When we're talking about um, the true espalier, they're, they're generally plants like uh, apples and pears, 
and they are done totally differently. So they're done more at, on a horizontal framework. So um, you might have a series of horizontal bars that might be 200 mil apart, and an apple, you grow those along those 200 mil apart, any branches coming up between the, the, the top, you know, the, the, the top and the bottom bar, you just prune off the trunk. So we're encouraging that root, that, that growth to go all the way across. But they're also incredibly easy to do, and they're a lot easier to maintain than they are for a normal fruit tree. So, yes. <laughs> Brilliant answer. Fritzy Staines asks, what are the best tomato plants to grow? I am in Perth. Okay. Just about any tomatoes um, that are available in seedling forms uh, that, that um, are grown by the nursery industry in your state will grow successfully. Uh, otherwise, from seed, and it's much too late now, any heirloom varieties, um, and, that all, that, and of course, what varieties that you want to grow, it all depends on what type that you want. Um, if you were a traditional tomato person, you might just like the red tomato, but if you're into more an heirloom type, you know, there's ones that are green, there's ones that are black, there's ones that are yellow, there's ones that are striped, there's all sorts. So, but generally a tomato will grow in just about any environment, um, providing, you know, you, you, you grow it at the right time. And in, in Perth um, or in Western Australia, I wouldn't see that, um, you know, the, the, the time is going to be much different to what we, what we grow from seed down here. So we sowed our seeds at the end of July uh, and then potted them up a couple of times into bigger pots and then put them in probably about two to three weeks ago. So probably at the end of October, we, we put ours into the ground and we've got, we've got tomatoes that have got tomatoes on them. Yes. Amazing. I know, and you just gave us some, some, some beautiful tomato plants and they already had tomatoes on them. Yeah. <gasps> Amazing. And, but as long as, and also very important that the soil be right. You've got to have, you, 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 you've got to put lots and lots of compost into the soil because over in WA you have, there's areas over there that are just full of sand. So you need to be putting massive amounts of compost and making sure that the soil pH is sitting at seven. Yes. Spot on seven, no more, no less. And I forgot when I planted mine to plant them, you know, you plant them sort of plant them on an deep. angle, deep, yeah. and then so then, uh, yeah. can you explain that? Because okay. I forgot so, all about it. So anything in the Solanum fam family, like, like chilies or eggplants or potatoes, for instance, um, you can grow, you, you can plant them as deep as you want. You can, you can, if you've got a plant that's that's um, 600 mil high, you can take off all the leaves bar the, the you know the top, you know 10 centimeters and plant that in the ground, the whole plant in the mm. ground except for that last little bit, mm. and it'll produce a root system all the way down where, yeah. you, where you've removed the leaves from it. Yeah, and it'll be incredibly healthy and it strong. Gives it and vigorous. Stre strength, doesn't it? Absolutely. So Brilliant. not having done that is not a major problem, it's but it just no. gives it that. And, and not with the plants that we provided you because <laughs> they're already so strong and healthy. All Beautifully grown. <laughs> of course, a fuel. Because so I suddenly realised he's done all that and provided the love and everything I else for know, those plants. I know she's an amazing woman. That one. Okay, this one is from Karen, and she says, "I'm so excited that my Chinese money plant has just sprouted its first pup. Woohoo! That's exciting. It's a plant that you generally, generally. Oh, I can't say generously shared. And I'm wondering if that's me. She's talking about. I'd love to know how, at what size and stage, the pup can be separated from the main plant, and will it send up multiple pups at a time or just the one? All right. So I'm going to hand this one over oh, to you no. because this is your domain. Oh. And hello. <laughs> hello. Hello, hello, hello. Okay, so it's a plant that... Oh, I'm looking at the question now. What size and stage the pup can be separated from the main plant? Karen, as long as they've got a couple of leaves on them, 
and that there are some roots. You can actually pull the stem up slightly. You can see some roots, a little bit of root on the stem of that plant or that little pup. You can pull it out very gently, dig it out and plant it into a new, uh, you know, into some new potting mix. If the plant is actually growing quite high, as in the stem is quite high, you can still actually cut that off. So that's obviously not sitting in any potting mix that's actually, you know, attached to the stem. You can cut that off the top of the plant. You can remove many of the leaves, quite a few of the leaves, and you can put them into water. You can leave them in a, in a, in a glass of water for a couple of weeks until you can see thing. that the roots have actually grown. Mm -hmm. So they're really, really strong plants and they will grow. I mean, as long as you've got them in the right light and you're feeding them on a fortnightly basis, like watering them on mm -hmm. a fortnightly basis, they will do brilliantly. So I think whatever you do, you'll be absolutely fine. They're, and they're a tough plant. Can you add to that, please, Keith? Because I wasn't prepared for... I'm not answering the questions. Well, one of the, one of the best things to do is, is when you've got... Um, and I'm just looking at looking at your uh, display there. You've got um, a, a large pot that's got lots and lots of foliage and lots of um, stems coming yeah, out of it. Yeah. In, in that instance there, I would take that pot outside and I would remove the whole plant from the pot. Oh. And then I would then separate it into smaller pieces uh, and then repot those yeah, yeah, yeah. into so, a lesser size pot or, yep. or, or a pot more suited to the size of the of the, the yes. cuttings that you're taking off. True. So what you're doing there is that you're, you're, you've, you've got the plant that's got various stems coming off it and you're just going through and taking the stem off and, and allowing that stem still to have roots as part of the, the, the communal root system that's on there. Yes. And they'll, they'll then become a separate plant. Yeah, so here, because this is the stems are getting very long, and I was thinking when I have time, I will actually remove, I wasn't going to pull it all out of the pot, mm. but I was going to remove a lot of these stems and do as I had just said about putting them into some water and waiting yeah. for the, the roots to grow. Um, and then on top of that, you also I can also see some little pups coming up as well. So they just go berserk, and it, they go on and on and on. Mm -hmm. So you need to you buy one pillia, and you will... They will multiply and multiply for a very long period of time. Yeah. So thank you for that one, and I appreciate that you that are enjoying Karen that, Karen. Or was that, Annie? that was Karen. Karen oh. was excited about a Chinese money plant. Annie is next, and Annie wants to know what the most popular question that we get asked for on Q and A is: tomatoes, lemon, white white lemons, white fly issues. She's saying. Yeah. Good day, Annie. Hope you're well, darling. Um, well, we haven't had many on any of these topics as part of the muddy boots questions because you know we haven't been asking for questions for you know forever mm. um, however when i ran the retail side of the diggers club uh, the number one question was always on citrus mm. and we used to we used to have a have a you know three or four of us in the in the retail space and every morning we'd go and write down on the on a chalkboard how many questions we thought we'd get asked on a daily basis on citrus because that was the most popular question. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason for that is that, that nearly everyone's got a citrus tree because they're easy to grow in the right sort of conditions. They're easy to grow. Um, but, you know... They have issues. But they have issues. Yeah, they do have issues. So that was, as I said, and they grow all year round. Um, you know, so that was... It's, it's just mm. that sort of thing. When it actually comes to tomatoes, tomatoes are also a popular popular question as well because... Nearly everyone grows a tomato because they can't stand the taste of the rubbish they're buying from the supermarket because they are not bred for taste. They're bred to be packaged and boxed and produced all in one hit. They've got skins on them that are so bloody thick that, that they'll never rot. Um, and they've had a gene inst inserted into them that stops them from ever maturing. So you mm, don't get that yum. flavor. And they're all hybrids. Everyone mm. is a rotten, stinking hybrid. Mm. 
um, when it comes to white flies. Well, these are just a nuisance sap-sucking little sod, and it's easily con easily controlled by spraying foliage with econeem at say 25 mil uh, in five liters, and then you mix into that um, eco uh, econeem and eco oil. All right, so econeem goes in at 10 mils per uh, per five liters. All right, so of, water, right. of water, of water, of yes, water. Yes. Yeah. All right. So just again, eco oil at twenty-five mil in five liters, and eco neem in ten mils in the five liters, and you so spray they go them. in together. They, they all go, go in together. together yes. Yeah, and you mix it up yep. with a bit of water yep. into your five liter mark, and then you spray weekly, and right. that that eco oil will stick to the foliage, uh, and it becomes both. Uh, a deterrent because the, 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 the white flies don't like the smell of it, mm -hmm. and it also becomes um, a, a, an organic pesticide because if they eat or suck the, the econeem, it will kill them as well. Uh. But it's, it is um, a beautiful organic way of controlling those stinking little mongrels. Fabulous. Now, the next question is from Diane. I've just purchased my first snowball plant and want to confirm that it likes the sun. I'm in Melbourne. If I put it in, put it in a pot, will it survive? It's quite small at the moment. It's perfect for pots. Um, but, you know, the bigger the pot and the better the quality potting mix, um, the better off it's going to be. And use your finger to determine the moisture level. Don't just keep on overwatering it because you will kill it. And then, of course, you need it to give it a regular liquid feed of something like Charlie Carp or Power Feed, and then prune off the dead flower heads. But it'll it'll grow and and, and thrive in those pots, providing you give it the love it deserves. Perfect. Now, Beck from Little Valley Garden would like to know. Well, has a question. We have a small yard on a 620 metre, a square metre block and try to maximise the space for food plants. We have some great insect visitors like dragonflies, hoverflies, bees and butterflies. But we'd also like to try and ensure a wildlife friendly garden with some areas of habitat for things like lizards and frogs, etc. What are some simple things we can do to create a wildlife friendly garden on a small scale? That's a good question. It is. Um... So, so you, you look at some of the perennial plants, for instance, um, because they're, 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 they are absolute bee magnets. So you can get small salvias, you can get um, achilleas, there's all sorts of perennials that will attract and flower for eight to ten months. And when you've got that sort of a situation, it's brilliant. If you've got space for a, a slightly bigger plant, say a metre and a half, then you've got plants like echiums, rosemaries, um, and some of the bigger lavenders. Uh, bee hotels are great for the solitary insects um, and of course water is a must so a small pond or a deep dish topped up on a regular basis to provide um, a source of, of, of moisture during the hot periods is yes. also going to you know be brilliant for that and you want to introduce say uh, lizards and skinks ha habitat for those is going to be logs and rocks and ground covers such as the prostrate uh, grevilleas uh, flowering types of plants like the anthemus, which I just noticed in your front garden is looking absolutely sensational. Thank you. Isn't it? <laughs> yes. um, and then, of course, butte things you can also add to your, your garden are, are grasses because these become little spaces for, for those smaller mammals and, and lizards to actually hide and yes. feel safe in. Yep. But they'll also provide seeds for the birds. And you can use native grasses such as poas or even ornamental grasses such as Miscanthus and Calamagrostis, um, a small 
small Calamagrostis is one called Overdam, which has got a slightly um, variegated foliage but a, and, a, and, a, and a pink blush to it, which is absolutely stunning. And then, of course, you want to provide a small evergreen canopy tree or, or so forth for the birds to go in and, and, and alight on. And then they can see up high, you know, that there's no predators lurking somewhere and they feel safe. Uh, so, and, and, and one of the great, um, you know, canopy trees for that sort of a situation is the native frangipani, which has beautiful mm. yellow blossoms, beautiful perfume. It'll attract bees and also um, uh, little, little, little birds as well. Aww, yeah, that sounds so beautiful. Okay, the next one is from Kylie. Kylie is saying, help! Help, help. She said it three times. Help, help, help. Please. We live in Warrandyte South and 10 centimetres under the top layer of soil is clay. Mm. One of these. I am trying to plant some truly stunning trees and our lawn is a boggy, crappy mess. Oh, dear. (laughs) What can I do? Please help. She said it again. All right. Okay. So help, 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 help. I'm going to say work, 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 work. (laughs) Um, What you've got to do is the first thing you should do is is check your soil uh, for compatibility for gypsum. Um, and, and there's a test you do. You need to go and find your, your, your clay, 10 centimetres under your soil, and get a few spoonfuls of that, of that put it into a jar, a jar with a lid. So you'd half fill that with, with clay, and then you fill the rest up with water, put the lid on, and you shake it until you can, you can basically dissolve all that clay, and then you put that jar on, uh, uh, on a surface and let it to separate. Now, if it separates within, you know, two hours or whatever else, gypsum's not going to work. The only thing that's going to work is going to be lots of compost into the soil. But if it remains cloudy, then gypsum will flocculate that that sticky clay um, substance, yep. and it'll it'll form aggregates so that the air and water can percolate down through it. But either way, the more organic matter that you can be incorporating into your soil the better it's going to be because that's going to then bring in earthworms that are going to travel up through the through the soil and put in burrows which become air and, and water tunnels for the soil, become spaces for the roots to get down. Now, that's the best thing that you can actually do is keep on adding compost to the top of your soil and if you can fork it up, rotary hoe it, break it up, whatever else, great. If you can, if you're going to use the gypsum, you've got to apply gypsum at two kilos per square metre, not one and a half, not three, but two, and mix, fork that into the soil or rotary hoe it into the soil and then keep on adding compost to that. And then you'll have the best possible soil going around. But it's work, 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 I'm sorry Mm, to say. A little bit of an effort, but you'll get there. Next question is from Matt. Hi, Elizabeth and Keith. Your podcast has been a time killer at work. Work. <laughs> You're supposed to be working. And a game changer for the garden. I love it. Well, that's lovely to hear. Thank you, Matt. My question today is about asparagus. I bought a crown three years ago and it has been in a pot with poor quality soil since then. Now I have finally pulled it out and transferred it to a bigger pot with lots of goodness. However, my issue is that I have got a hell of a lot of weeds in it and it feels like there is not enough space for the asparagus mm. to grow to the appropriate size and it looks like it's suffocating. What should I do? Okay, if, if that's your current situation, um, Matt, Matt, then I would suggest that you let it go this season. Um, give it a feed, put some liquid fertiliser and all the rest of it into the soil and try to bulk it up as, as best as you can. Don't worry about the weeds um, pull those out where you can, but don't be too concerned about that. Because come winter time, what I'm going to suggest you do is, once the plant has, has gone into dormancy, 
take it out of that pot, get a hose and blast all the soil and all the other weeds that, that, that are in that particular root system you got there, blow them all out. And then I would suggest that you, rather than thinking about another, another black plastic pot, which is never going to be big enough to produce a decent crop of asparagus, what I'd suggest you do is see if you can get another couple of, of, um, of crowns. Get yourself an old black uh, rubbish bin, so a, a, like a decent sized rubbish bin, 40 litres or 50 litres, whatever else. Cut some holes down the bottom that will allow moisture to go through. Fill it up with compost and some good quality potting mix. And then deep plant your crowns into that, you know, say maybe 10 centimetres from the top of your pot. Put your crowns into that and then cover them over and then put some blood and bone over the top of that and then just make sure you use your finger, test the moisture of the soil on a regular basis and then wait until the springtime comes again and it'll take off. And that this, this following season, um, when you've done all this, you should start to be able to harvest some beautiful spears of asparagus. Um, you, you, you've got to really work at it hard. So I'd suggest you have a look at getting some um, some biochar if you can, and mix that into that that um, that, that beautiful organic compost and, and potting mix that you're going, uh, and then blood and bone on a regular basis, um, and just let it go. I think that'll solve it. That is great advice, Keith. Thank you. I'm sure Matt will be happy with that. Next one is from Brendan. While looking at setting up my raised bed, etc., I was wondering what the pros and cons are of greenhouses, i.e. setting up a 15 by 10 metre greenhouse in my backyard for veggie growing. I'm in a suburb of Sydney, if that changes the pros or cons compared to a cooler Melbourne. Thank you so much for all, for all you both do. Well, that's nice. I've learned so much. <laughs> Thank you, Brendan. All right, now, that's a hothouse. I mean, that, that, is, that is a commercial grade size hothouse. Um, and the role of a hothouse is to allow you to grow plants in a controlled environment, uh, one that is warmer than, than it would be normally be, uh, as it concentrates the warmth from the sunlight in, into that particular area. This enables you to grow plants such as those from the Norman, northern climes, so you could grow things like ginger, turmeric, bananas, all those sorts of things uh, all year round. You could grow capsicums all year round, eggplants all year round, tomatoes, chilies. It's just a great way of doing it. Um, and it'll also enable you to start seeds earlier in the season, like tomatoes, capsicums and others for planting out, outside. The downside of a hothouse is in the middle of summer when the temperatures are high. You need then to be able to control the heat by opening doors and windows or by painting or covering the top of the, of the, you know, the, the hothouse with either shade cloth or, or a, a, um, a water-based uh, you know, chalky paint that you can easily clean off. My personal advice would be to start small and see how it works out for you. My hothouse is 1.8 by 1.8 by 1.8, so it's a, a little it's bit a, smaller than a, this one. It's a lot smaller than that, mm. and we grow ginger in there. Um, we, we've we've started off and grown 170 tomato plants in there for our, our family and our friends, and we, we we grow enough vegetable seedlings to family to feed the family and our friends. And being small, I can control the internal environment without any worry. I have a power for heat mats and I have water for, you know, for keeping plants moist and everything else. It's just a great way of, of, of controlling. But if you want to go gung-ho, go gung-ho. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he will after that. 
Well, that's, I think that's about it. So thank you again to everyone for sending in these wonderful questions. We absolutely love them. Please, get some more in. Yeah, yeah please. Get some more. Please bring, get, send us as many as you can whenever you want to. Please keep them coming either by DM to our Muddy Boots Instagram page or by emailing gardengirl at aussiemail.com.au. And also, if there are any specific topics that you'd like us to discuss as a main podcast, then please let us know about them as well. We would love to hear your suggestions. And now it Who's is... the winner? Who's the winner? Who's the winner? Oh, hang on. It's prize winner time, <laughs> Keith. This month's winner is Beck from Little Valley Garden. Now, this was chosen by my husband, Brett. We decided that he could choose the winner yeah. this week because he does all the editing, so it's only fair that he gets to choose as well. Absolutely. So uh, Beck's question was on how to create a wildlife-friendly garden on a small scale. So congratulations, Beck. We will be in contact with you shortly. And thanks again to the guys at The Plant Runner for supplying the monthly Q&A prize. Visit theplantrunner.com. Thank you for listening to Muddy Boots. For more information on today's podcast, please go to muddyboots.net.au and happy gardening.